Hey, it's Shane here. Throughout the majority of my career, I spent thousands of hours on my technique to try to be as close to perfect as I could be. But the one thing I didn't work on was my mental skills. On the exact mindset I needed every ball to be able to access all of my technical skills that I worked so hard to develop. Well, I've recently released my book, Winning the Inner Battle, which has all of the information that you will ever need to deeply understand how you can create the correct mindset for you so that you can bring the best version of yourself every time you step out into the middle. Go to shamewatson.au to purchase a copy of Winning the Inner Battle now. It is available in paperback, ebook, or audiobook versions. Well, it's now time for your episode of Lessons Learned with the Greats. Enjoy. Then that night, what I'd try to do the night before a game was have a quick two or three minutes on my own, think about what I was going to achieve or try to achieve the next day, who I was playing against. And then, even to this day, my wife says one of my best abilities is to forget. And then I'd try and forget it nearly until the toss the next day. So to try and keep all this upstairs as fresh as possible, but in the back of your mind, knowing exactly what you want to achieve. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lessons Learned with the Greats. I'm Shane Watson, and today we're joined by one of the toughest cricketers who has ever donned the baggy green and is a true Aussie icon. This guy was the heartbeat of the Australian cricket team as it turned itself from downtrodden in the mid-1980s to a world force again by the late 80s, with the resurrection starting with the World Cup triumph in 1987 and the away Ashes win in 1989. David Boone, thank you so much for taking the time to be on my show. Pleasure, Shane. Lovely to be with you. (laughs) Growing up as a young kid, me and all my mates always loved emulating Booney in the backyard, the little adjustment of the front pad, the waggling of his bat, and that fierce cut shot. And then the esky at short leg being Booney, where no matter how hard you hit, hit the ball into it, you're always out. <laughs> that was how good Booney was at short leg. In Australia's first ever World Cup win, Booney averaged 55 during the tournament, with it culminating in him scoring a match-winning 75 in the World Cup final. He also averaged just over 55 during the triumphant 89 Ashes win, batting at the crucial number three position. And in the 107 tests Bernie played for Australia, he scored 21 test hundreds at an average of 43.65. There are so many stories that I've heard about how unbelievably tough Bernie was. He batted with a badly injured arm against the West Indies at the Adelaide Oval to rescue the Aussie team that was in trouble, as well as on so many other occasions where mere mortals would have, wouldn't have been able to absorb the pain that was inflicted on him during by the West Indies fast bowls in particular. <laughs> he also showed absolutely no fear fielding at short leg and did become the world's best in this position that most cricketers tried to stay well away from. Booney, there are so many highlights that I remember of you growing up as a kid, but the one that really stands out to me the most was you hitting the winning runs during the 1989 Ashes Triumph. What do you remember about that very special time? Well, mate, I think you're exaggerating with a lot of the lead up there. Um, not, not whatsoever. <laughs> if, I, if I can come back at you first, I think, mate, congratulations to you as well on your career. It's been wonderful and lovely to watch. 
Very kind, Bernie. I mean, it was a wonderful thing, you know. Eighty-seven to win the World Cup when we weren't expected to, uh, to be able to contribute to that, and the team growth, as you've mentioned, is um, you know something that, that they're memories that I relish. Um, I can still remember the eighty or both of those, the eighty-nine and the eighty-seven series really vividly. Um, as for playing the winning shot in '89 at Old Trafford, I've seen it a few times, and technically, the young men learning to play the sweep shot do not emulate <laughs> that. Worst, technically incorrect sweep shots you'd ever want to see in your life. And I can tell you the story behind that. When I was a young kid, one of the Australian selectors was a great man called uh, Sammy Loxton part of the 48 Invincibles, and I made my first 100 up at the old TCA ground in Hobart against Victoria, and I swept the living daylights out of Ray Bright. <laughs> when I came off, Sammy said, young man, well played. <clears throat> he had that big gravelly voice. He said, sweep shot. This is the worst shot in the book. Did you take two steps down the wicket and hit it through mid-wicket for four? Sweep shots, one or out. <laughs> Didn't sweep again until the 89 Ashes. A <laughs> <laughs> guy called Martin Spate, who I played with at Durham at the ripe tender age of 37, he taught me how to sweep again. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was just one of those things. But, mate, what, you know, a great experience. As always, we were the worst touring side to ever want. <laughs> We had a, a wonderful summer and, you know, after a couple of defeats in the Ashes to come back and win that one was special. That is for sure. Like I remember, um, you know, staying up with my dad, watching the first session on TV um, at that 89 Ashes series and then listening to as much as I could before I fell asleep um, on the radio. And just that, um, you know, to be a part of that, that's only what dreams are made of, um, especially with the team not winning um, – in England for, for quite a while to be a part of that and and not just a, a, a bystander either, either, an integral part of that um, must have been incredibly special. Mate, it was, you know, it was, it was quite a phenomenal series really. It, um, for me personally, it was actually quite frustrating in, in amongst all the euphoria of winning and, you know, playing so well as a team and sort of making our way back as a test cricket side that could be competitive and win uh, from where we were. That was sort of the start of that rise that you mentioned in the intro. So, and then to become, you know, the, the world, the strength of world cricket, mm. once again, was, um, you know, a, a legacy that all of us in that era really looked back with fondness and with pride. But as I was saying, 89 was quite frustrating because um, I actually didn't get 100. Mm, no, that, high school was 94. 94? Yeah. I was angry that day too. Um, <laughs> you know, and then we came back in 93, you know, as probably one of the better teams in the world and the only team we hadn't really beaten was the West Indies. And um, I got out, I think, the first test at Old Trafford, got out again for 94 or 6 or something like that. And the best tournament, geez, I was wild. 
But AB, my lovely old mate, he he said, "There, Bernie, don't worry about it. We're, we're going to win this game anyway." So. You know, wouldn't it be nice just to score your first 100 in England at Lords next week? That'll be better than Old Trafford. And um, managed to do that and scored four in a row. So it was a bit of a different story in 1989. You achieved so many incredible things on the career field. We've already mentioned um, two really special moments um, and series in your in your career. But looking back now, is there one highlight apart from those that really stand out um, in your career? Most of mine are, are, are team things, you know, like that 87, 95, finally beating the West Indies in the West Indies. Um, they, they were pivotal points in, in what we were trying to achieve as a team, um, especially under AB's leadership initially throughout that period. Uh, he was like our, our godfather almost in many respects. Um but I suppose from an individual point of view, the year before the bicentennial test, we had a, an Ashes series in Australia. So it must have been 1987. Yeah. I, I was playing like an absolute busted bum. Mm-hmm. And thinking everything, confidence was quite low. And, you know, that's really disappointing when you're playing against the old foe in an Ashes series, quite justifiably. So... The next year we had the bicentennial test in Sydney and it was, to me, it was a really important time to show England that I could actually play and that 88 was probably a bit of an aberration for a, a few weeks. You know, so I really got, you know, I got out in the first innings as we all did and then in the England played really well. I think it was one of my colleagues these days, Chris Broad, made a big hundred and we, we had to bat for a day and a bit to uh, save the test match and we ended up with 100 and not out. So um, that, that was one highlight from an individual point of view that was really, really important to me as that individual. Um, making 100 against the West Indies in Jamaica, I, I look back on with pride for a number of reasons. One, playing them there in uh, probably one of the, the West Indies cauldrons mm-hmm. that they used to own back in the days, and with a bit of fun, it was, it was quite good to score runs against them there because, as you will recall, the old ground, there were the cages on the right-hand side of the dressing room, and the amount of hooch that was floating <laughs> in the day, you ended up nearly as high as they were. <laughs> the, only, the only bonus was that was I actually got hit by Patrick Patterson on the chin and didn't feel a thing. <laughs> so they're, they're, they're two yeah. that stand out. Obviously, you know, being a you know a, a link to everyone else in the '87 World Cup final. After your playing days, um, you've stayed in the game by initially being the marketing mani- marketing manager at at Tasmanian Cricket. Uh, you were also an Australian selector, and now you're an ICC match referee, um, as well as being a, a, a board on the board of Cricket Tasmania. So not only did you have an incredible influence on so many people as a player, but now you continue to stay in the game to give back to the future generations of cricketers. I was so unbelievably lucky to have come down to Tasmania as a 19-year-old and have you mentor me when I first 
played first class cricket for Tasmania. And now everyone is going to be so lucky to be able to hear these phenomenal insights across so many different aspects of, of cricket and life. So I'm going to start with the technical side of cricket. So from a batting perspective, was there one specific technical component that really stands out to you that you developed? So from that moment on, you knew if you bought this every time you batted, you were a great chance of being at your best. It's a really difficult question, that one, but I think I would start way back. Um, my, my first real coach was a guy called Jack Simmons from Lancashire uh, up in Launceston, and he picked me up when I was about eight or nine years old. Hmm. And in probably a typically conservative nature, the only thing he really worked on with me technically was, you know, t- three things. One, Forward defence, obviously, getting back, back defence and knowing where your off stump is to be able to let the ball go. Um, the rest of it, he never touched and he just let it happen as it was. And if it wasn't quite technically correct, he didn't mind as long as it wasn't getting you out all the time. So there was a natural progression to the the immediate technical thing of defence. Um so to me, a little bit different to some of the players now um, in, in the more modern era who, I must say, travelling the world and watching them is a privilege. There is so much talent out there. The way the game is played is just wonderful to watch. The aggression, um, the innovative nature that has come into the game with 2020 cricket and all that, it's just a... A privilege to be able to watch that. For mine, though, I've probably got trying to get forward a little bit more than some of the guys do these days. Mm-hmm. Um, back very well. But that's, that's probably the only thing that I would pick out as a subtle difference um, in the way we play. But as with many sports, the game just evolves and you, you learn from the past. You don't criticise it and you move it forward. And I think we all... When we finish, hopefully we have a legacy that has made the game better than when we joined it. So, you know, more than technique, that was one of my philosophies of trying to what I was trying to achieve. So, from a technical point of view, mate, that, that was it. And then after that, with um, when Bob Simpson became coach, fielding took another turn. Um, he, he tried to take us to the level of the best fielding side in the world. Um, and he said if our fielding, and I've heard the greats of Vivian Richards say this as well, that if he was if he was catching well, he knew he was batting well. Because it meant he was watching the ball and going well. And Simo taught us that as well. It was probably the first time I really realised how easy it was, or not easy, it's never easy, but how much more assured you could be by catching the ball behind you rather than creating that big brick wall going out directly side. Simo taught us that a lot. And I think probably more than me at bat pad, even though I did it there, the more visual ones for that and the great slip fielders of the guys that I played with, Mark Taylor, Mark War. Wow. Mm. Some of the things that they took, it allowed them as well. We didn't have too many balls drop short because they caught it with such technique. They could come that yard forward but they'd still catch it behind them by yeah. two or three feet. And 
you know, it was just amazing. It was, it was sensational. Really was. Yeah, just going back to the um, the batting technical side of things, it's it's amazing that you talk about how important defence was in your evolution as a batsman, and it's exactly what um, AB talked about on on um, one of the episodes that we've had, and also Ian Chapel. Everything, the whole foundation of their batting was based around keeping the ball, like keeping the good balls out, and then you just expand your game from there, um, and it's. It's interesting now the way things have evolved that even seeing um, you know, my son Will and how he he's developing his his batting, it's there's not, not a defensive sort of um, foundation. It's all about you know, scoring runs and hitting hitting the ball. And you see that's you know the way the game's evolved has been around just taking the aggressive approach. But the foundation has to always be defence making sure that you no matter what you know, as you said, you know where your off stump is so you can leave well, but also most importantly, front foot and back foot defense, you know how to be able to keep the good balls out and then expand from there. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Um, I, I'd agree with AB totally. I, I think the the thing to have a good defense as well is that as batsmen, even though we think six five four three two one zero, um, we also think that batsmen, that bowlers play the game of cricket for batsmen to score runs. <laughs> yeah. And, um, we, we do know that occasionally they're allowed to bowl a good ball. Mm. Um, occasionally they'll get on a wicket that's going to assist them. So that's when you, you bring it back in and you change thought process for a while when the ball's swinging or it's seeming around and you... You focus on that defensive, those defensive attributes that you've got and probably change a little bit where another thing that, that Simo taught us um, quite well and it worked, even though the game has changed, is um, you can be really attacking by rotating strike. Um, and there were little things that he said that rang true and they would still hold firm now is if the ball has stopped before the fielder has picked it up, you should be able to run one. So, you know, soft hands doing that rotating strike. I'd imagine during your bowling days as well, there's nothing more frustrating to a bowler than not being able to bowl three, four, five, six balls at a batter. So that aggressive nature or attacking pose, depending on the conditions, can, you know, alter a little bit. Um, I think where we found it, or I found it really advantageous was actually against the West Indies. You know, great bowlers that they had, nothing more frustrating to them than you being at their end. So, you know, to run those ones and try and rotate the strike was really, really important. You, you know, somebody again, like a Richard Hadley, for example, his, his stock standard line was about a foot outside off, but if you could gradually get him to bring that back in, by letting the ball go, then you'd get your four ball and your, your other shots would, would come. You just had to be a little bit patient with those guys. The only difficulty I found with the West Indies was when you've got Gus Logie on one side and Roger Harper on the other, one of the best fielders that have ever played the game, it'd be a little bit difficult sometimes. <laughs> there are so many things in this great game that we play or have played from technical to mental to team to oh, how many things. It just all rolls into one. 
and um, off you go. When it comes to um, that tactical aspect around not allowing a bowler to be able to bowl more than a couple of balls to you, there's no question that I know, like talking to, to Warney about his bowling, he hated a batsman getting up the other end. He wanted to be able to put three, four, five, six balls together to a batsman to be able to work them over um, in like during that over. So that tactic around being able to get down the other end, there's no question as a bowler, it does your head in. You can bowl your best ball, but then the, that person you're bowling to just got off strike. Even with Warney, you know, I was lucky enough to play with Warney quite a bit, um, more in the second half of, of my career. But he was a bowler that planned six balls mm. and he knew what all six were going to be. It wasn't making a go. The only one he made up was his hat trick in Melbourne. We listened to Flamo. <laughs> Especially at Bat Pat, quite often we would have a chat and I'd know what he was going to try and bowl. <laughs> and I knew from ball one to six against a certain batter what that was going to be. And two things. One, if he allowed the batter to get off strike or a fielder did or um, – he bowled a bad ball, which he was allowed to occasionally. <laughs> really frustrated with that because the plan then went out the window. Mm. A, a batter is trying to break that up, exactly. And you, you think like a batter, you're trying to break that up. It's a bit like John Embry, who I thought was a really good off spinner, played for England. Um, John loved to wheel and sort of rush you a little bit. Yeah. You know, so technically... Every second ball, you just pull away and stop him mm. so that break his rhythm a little bit, you know, and, and, and that seemed to help sometimes to a, a bowler who was so steady and so good. Another tactical thing that people are always trying to get better at to be able to, well, have, have, make the most of the advantage that you can have. Absolutely. Read, read mm. the game mm. from all senses. You, mm. know, you don't have to you don't have to be the only one that's trying to read the game and, and do all that. I think everybody on the field can be a captain and think that way. Mm. It, it keeps you alert. It keeps you on top of things. It makes you learn about the game. It, you know, you might see something that he misses in a batter and what's going on because you're a batsman yourself and you can, you can sense it. You know, especially where I was at bat pad, I, I could sense quite a bit through you know, somebody's mannerisms changed a little bit or their footwork wasn't quite as assured as it normally was. You, you, could, you could tell and help with that. So everyone, everyone be a leader. Yeah, when you're talking about um, you know, bat, bat pad, you were the best um, bat pad fielder in the world. So when you were developing that skill, was there one or two technical aspects that you really worked on to become so good at that position? Well, there was in many respects. Um, I sort of fell into it a little bit in a test in Adelaide when we didn't have any real young pros just to go in there and be the sacrificial <laughs> lamb. <laughs> nobody, nobody wanted to do it. Um, so I just said to Simo and AB, look, I'll go in and have a shot and managed to take a couple of catches, didn't really know what I was doing. And then afterwards I thought, well, now hang on. This could be an opening for you, that you are <laughs> not. So I went to Simo and I said, mate, look, we have a specialist, first slip, second slip, gully, 
normally a specialist cover, cover point guy, why shouldn't bat pad be the same thing? Does that take a catch that's not expected? He could stop a ball to stop a batter getting off strike. He could do all these things and, and be as important to the fielding side as anywhere else. And he said, okay, well, you know you're going to have to work. My reason was so I didn't have to chase it. That, that was it. Yeah. And the bunk <laughs> went past you. You just fell over and tended that it hit you so you didn't have to chase it. It was a bonus. Well, you know, there was something in my thought process that was going to be beneficial to me. Yeah, very um, But Simo said, right, we're going to have to work then. And we just worked our backsides off, practising, 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 getting balance right, getting technique right, getting your evasive mm. move structure right as well when you knew it was coming away mm. and it wasn't. Mm that would be coming at pace. You know, for me, that was to stay low as, as low as possible and I always went left. So okay. I knew where I was going to go. You, you develop your own – like we, we'd do probably 30 minutes extra every day just at that. <laughs> then bashing balls at you. Very rarely he was so talented with his hands, Simo, I must say, mm. that I, I really practised in a helmet because I knew – total control and he was never going to hit me. Wow. Um, no matter how hard he decided to hit it towards the end of that practice session. But, you know, it, it all came off. And you can – there are subtle differences, I must say. Like quite often I with Warney especially and Tim May, Mark War would be on one side, I'd be on the other. Junior was totally different technique to me. Mm where he would watch the ball coming down and judge things on that, um, whereas I would watch the front pad. I couldn't watch the ball. Got head was going everywhere, couldn't do that. So I'd watch front pad and that would give me a good indication of what was coming and what sort of shot was going to be played. Um, and I suppose with practice it worked. So, yeah, it was a, it was a lot of work and... There were a lot of really satisfying moments when you did, you know, you got a lot of easy catches, but when you took one that maybe wasn't expected, it was all worth it. And I must say to your listeners, young kids, don't be scared of it. It's a great spot to field for those reasons we just outlined. You know, plus you're right in the game all the time. And it's, I just think it was, I enjoyed it. It's probably why I was a lunatic at number three as well. You know, I just enjoyed that. And to be honest, in all those games, I got hit three times of any significance whatsoever. Mm. The rest of it was quite superficial, really. And what you're talking about there is making the most of an opportunity as well, um, which is what life's all about, is there was an opportunity to be able to really specialise in something um, and go, you know, if I'm going to do something, let, let me do it to the best of my ability. And then you became a, such an integral part of the fielding unit as well. Like, you know, Warney's hat-trick um, in Melbourne wouldn't have been possible if it wasn't having you, who's a highly skilled bat pad fielder, to be able to dive and reach for that ball. Something as simple as I that. Fell over, fell over well, didn't I? <laughs> oh, come on. That was not falling over at all. That was full stretched. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, a lot of yeah, those sort of things happen. But you know, sometimes you're in there. I know we 
there's a lot said about sledging and stuff in <laughs> in the game, and everyone can hark on that a bit. We, we never used to sledge. Having a chat to a bat is fine as long as it's humorous. Yeah. You, pers- you, you get personal. No. Yeah, no. I agree. Can't be in that. Yeah. But you have a human and you, you can do that quietly. And well, I suppose the advantage I had was underneath the helmet with uh, well, a lot darker moustache then. <laughs> People didn't really see your lips move. So it was nice. <laughs> Welcome about it at the crease and telling me he was playing well and what was coming from warning. How <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good. During your generation of playing, um, cricket-specific fitness, like being able to bat all day, being able to field all day at short leg, for example, was the way to get the best out of yourself. So um, what did your fitness regime look like, like throughout your career? Was it re- like really career-specific? fielding fitness, um, running between wickets, that sort of thing? Yeah, a lot of it was. Um, as I said earlier, you know, Simo was really big on fielding. So our fielding mm. sessions wouldn't be overly long, but they would be tough. And, and you're moving all the time. And you, did, you know, it would incorporate what you could call a lot of fitness work within that. Mm. But outside of that, Errol Alcott did – our, our physio and fitness guy back in those days, who was fantastic. You know, he had us reasonably fit. We'd do all the stuff. I think there was a lot of misconjecture about our fitness levels. Um, I, I think we were quite reasonable. But I would dare say, I've got to say, that because of the nature of the way the game is played now, the shorter tours but more of them, mm. therefore more travelling, more recovery needed from long-haul flights and all that. Fitness levels are probably more important to the modern player because of some of those things. And they work visibly harder. You know, we're, I think we, we quietly went about it. And I know, you know, we, we do all those beat tests and that. Oh, that's the worst thing you can ever do in your life. I hated that. <laughs> but, yeah, you would do a lot of running to try and, you know, maintain so you could feel all day, you, you could all day and stuff. But, yeah, I think the guys generally, we probably didn't do as much in the gym as what the guys do now for yeah. as far as physical strength is concerned. Uh, we did do some, but probably not as much. Um, but I, I think we were cricket-specific fit. Yeah. Um, not that, not, how can we say it? athletically fit. I think there's a difference. There is a difference and we need to make sure that um, you know, the, the current generation realise how important the skill development and the skill um, and your career-specific fitness is because there are times, and I've seen it um, very close up, where the um, priority shifts towards being more athletically fit instead of just – instead of being, yes, of course, you need to be very fit – but it's all to do with being able to access your skills over and over again under fatigue. So, because if your skills if your skills break down um, over a period of time, then guess what? You won't be playing at that level for for that for that long. So that's where you know it works so well. You know, throughout the ages of making sure that you didn't have to be in the gym, you didn't have to do you know, non cricket specific exercises and strength work, because it all comes down to skill development. Because cricket is a skill based game. 
Yeah, I think your, your, your fitness level helps you with that, especially as like you say, when, when you get into a fatigue situation, you can still hold your form, mm-hmm. so to speak. Um, you can still make good decisions and you, you learn from the lessons that you've had. I can remember a really big one. When we were in uh, India in 86, we were playing the, the up being the tied test down in Madras, as it was then or Chennai. And the time of the year, it was stinking hot and humid, like well into the 40s, pushing, I think it was 80, 90 degrees humidity. You just sweat. You didn't even have to move to sweat. Um, and Simo, <clears throat> it was the only time we discussed helping the batter out and st- stopping this rotation of strike to give him a breather in this weather. By the end of day one, I've been in there all day, ended up getting out that night. That happened and I just lost it. Like mentally started getting a bit dizzy because I wasn't concentrating regularly as much and it sort of went against it and then I ended up feathering one and flopping at one. Then we discussed it afterwards and said, hang on, maybe moving away from our normal way is not the right thing because this is what... I experienced through open discussion as well in the dressing room, everyone being equal, allowed to say what they want, and then you discuss it properly, everyone can learn lessons from somebody else's experience as well. Yeah, absolutely. And we need to always communicate those because you know, the the lessons you can learn inside your own dressing room, as as long as it's communicated sometimes now because things feel so busy that there's actually not a lot of time or they don't make time. Teams don't make time to really sit down in the dressing room and talk about the day's play and talk about, you know, cricket and, and, you know, ways to be able to learn and, and, you know, lessons away from um, the cricket ground as well. But that's something we can't ever lose sight of. I saw that in England when I was at Durham, captaining Durham. The English system, the start of the day, the 12th man would come around. You've done this. Mm -hmm. And would come around with a sheep, like, what what drink would you like after the game? Mm -hmm. That was it. You got one. And I said at home games and I thought, we're having that one drink, blokes are showering and then ducking off. Mm. You know, I've got a young team here. We're not talking about cricket. So I went to the, the CEO and the chairman and said, look, I'd like a fridge in the proper fridge in the dressing room. Our major sponsor is a brewer. Not that I'm promoting that everybody should have a beer. They can have whatever they want. I want us to stay during home games for 15, 20, 30 minutes, depending on what's happened, at the end of every day enjoy each other's company, discuss what's happened and discuss lessons learned. Mm. Then we're going to invite the opposition into our room for a drink because we've got a fridge. It's a bit anti-English that, but it worked. And we sat there and I thought, shit, it's not that bad talking about cricket. The only, the only pitfall was when Sunderland were playing Newcastle and the dressing room was split between both the football teams. <laughs> And you had half the room in tears when Sunderland got relegated. <laughs> Hang on, boys. Up a bit. <laughs> but no, it was good fun. Talking about cricket is not bad. It's good. It's lessons learned, I suppose. You know, there was that little period. I think you got, the guys now have got better at it. But there was a period of time there where socialising between teams went out the window. Yeah. And it was probably quite disappointing to an older guy like me not so much, you know, the, the going in and having a drink or whatever, but two aspects. You can go into an opposition and talk to a great player and learn something. 
you know, you can just imagine us as young blokes talking to Viv Richards, talking mm. to Gordon Graham, talking to these guys from the West Indies, you know, talking to Graham Gooch, talking to, you know, guys that batted in Sunil Elgavaskar and guys like this and learning. Mm. But the other thing I've found, you actually made friends. And that is one of the greatest things that I look back on cherish from cricket are the friends that I made, not only within the Australian cricket team, but from other countries and test playing nations in the world. Um, you know, it's a cherished thing, as you would know. Yeah, and that's a, like through, through my experience of playing, like I never really got to know many anyone really that I played against because the way things were was it was only really after a series where you socialise with the opposition. Um, the beauty of now playing of the IPL coming along um, the time that it did was that was the first time where you actually got to know people that you've just been playing against because you're playing with them as, as um, teammates. Um, so that, that for me was something incredibly special because you got to really get inside the minds of these great players that you played with. But, um, you know, it just wasn't something that was done throughout my career that you went into the opposition change room after a day's play or anything like that, which is very sad because as you, as you said, the, the things you can learn from the opposition, they're not going to give all their secrets away, but gosh, they're going to even one little bit of gold, like a gold nuggets going to, can help so much. Absolutely. And I, I agree with you. I think IPL helped with that and changed that direction a lot. Mm. And well, the, the other bonus of it is it, it allows for what happens on the ground to stay on the yeah. ground. Yeah. It doesn't get carried over. Yeah, very true. And you know that what occurred out there was in the heat of battle. It wasn't personal. Mm. And it was a everything for your team, trying to win that game or save that game or whatever. So, you know, afterwards you go and you might have never laugh about it. And... You know, it stopped all that, a lot of the animosity and the presumptuous way that you viewed somebody's character without really knowing. Booney, you were so mentally tough. Um, so from a mental skills point of view, were you always built a certain way or did you develop certain mental skills that you used to, to beat your best so consistently as you were? Mate, the, the best way to describe that is I've got no idea. I, I think that was somebody else's perception of me. I, I think it boils down to the, the era that I played in, you, you had to be tough because to begin, we weren't winning too many games. To keep coming up and coming up and trying to improve and trying to get better, you, you had to treat every day as a new day and try and forget what had happened the day before or a week before or whatever. So whether that's mental toughness or not. I think the other one we're more referring to is like a pain barrier thing. Um, you know, it's inevitable. None of us are going to lie that there is a chance you can get hit. For some reason I got it in. I think it's, it's innate. You're born with it. Sometimes you can enhance, enhance it. For me, it was a mental thing that if... I just decided if I can get hit, however, way it was, that if I could just stand there and keep that pain within me, the bowler turned around, it might make them think, Christ, we're bowling against a brick wall here. 
we're going to have to look for another way. So it was just something that I did think about. Um, but I think I was lucky to be born innately with a reasonable pain barrier. But I suppose you can liken it for kids with if you're up the bench and you're helping mum, or as we sometimes do, and I've seen you, we cook now in our old age, that if you accidentally cut your finger with a knife when you're doing the veggies or whatever, it doesn't hurt until you look down and you see the blood. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Being hit by a cricket ball is the same. Mm. I think you feel it until you realise after the fact. And you just got to, I suppose, learn to cope with that and, and believe that's what's happening. Mate, it's the same as my cut shot. People ask, you know, how do you play your cut shot? They used to when I was young. I say, honestly, I've got no idea. It just happens. And I think that is the same answer to this question. But when it comes to when you're at your absolute best, what, what was your mindset like in the, in the lead-up to the game during your innings um, at, the, at the lunch, like drinks breaks or the lunch breaks? Um, was there a certain um, space that you're in for, that, you, that you had to you, – you tried to emulate every time to be able to try and pull yourself into that best version of yourself? The best way for that is preparation. Mm. You should prepare in your way and not finish your preparation until you know that you're ready. Um, you know, in a net session, you'll have a specific, you might have 30 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever that time frame is, so that we can all be a part of that in a, in a net session. But then if you need to go back to prepare, you should be allowed to do it and support staff, net bowlers, whichever way you want to do it. Don't finish until you're ready. Um, then that night, what I'd try to do the night before a game was have a quick two or three minutes on my own, think about what I was going to achieve or try to achieve the next day, who I was playing against. And then even to this day, my wife says one of my best abilities is to forget. And then I'd try and forget it nearly until the toss the next day. So to try and keep all this upstairs as fresh as possible, but in the back of your mind, knowing exactly what you want to achieve. I don't think you can ever assume what is going to happen. There's still a, a, a matter of, you know, one day a guy can be on song as a bowler and the next day quite not quite. I suppose if, if you are mentally attuned and he does bowl you a rank half volley first ball, that you are in the frame of mind that you can hit that for four. Mm. Well, he runs. If he bowls a great ball, you're in the right frame, let it go. We'll play it defensively. Mm. So, you know, it's, it's just a matter of being prepared and ready for whatever is thrown at you without assuming what that's going to be. And what you said there around just not overthinking overthinking things. So setting time aside the night before the game to be able to just you know, visualize and map out who you're playing against and that sort of thing, but then forgetting and not going through and continuing to burn mental energy you know, up until even you go out to bat, which is batting's what batting's all about is being able to be as mentally fresh as it possibly can be. So you can react to the best of your ability and do it for the ultimate as a, as a test cricketer is to be able to bat all day. That's a whole, holy grail. 
I've always held firm, whether I'm right, whether I'm wrong. But to be honest, you look around world cricket for a long period of time and we can all identify really talented, gifted players. But to be honest, how many of them are there? Mm. Many of us have some ability to make the most of it through hard work, practice, preparation, strength, being able to analyse things and all that. So I'm a big believer that test cricket is 90% mental and 10% ability and using your brain is as effective as using your own natural gifts. Completely agree. And just one one final question on this because I find it I, I find it absolutely fascinating. As so for you, as the bowler was running in, I'm talking about as a quick bowler to start with. Um, as a fast bowler was running in, what was going through? What were you thinking of? What was going through your mind? Was it were you thinking about your the timing of your, of your pre movement because you had a like a back and across. Um, um, and a waggle of your bat? A little forward one and then across. Okay, forward and then across. Yeah, that, that, that was something that I probably developed the okay. longer that I played because I was only short. What do you say? Five foot two Tasmanian flared pants. But <laughs> for me to get tall, I found that easier with a subtle little forward press that I could push back and up mm-hmm. then back and across from there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there was a little movement there. But in saying that, if that goes wrong and the timing is out, everything can go to pot. Yeah, yeah. Which is what happened to me a little bit in 87, where I realised after a while with the introduction of some modern technology and being able to look at some things from the past with what's happening now, link them up and at the same time, that that press was slightly out. So okay. it just took like that to get it back right. Yeah. Um, once you identified that's what the issue was. Um, yeah, so you, you just do your own innate little things and yeah. you go through it all and you prepare to do the best of your ability. I think my mother taught me something quite young that I never forgot either, um, was that if you can come off that ground whether you've succeeded or in your own mind you haven't done as well as you would have liked. If you gave it everything, what can you do? You, you can't do any, anything about it but know that you've given it everything. And I suppose the key to that, my, my kids used to get mad with me all the time. You know, just try to be the best that you can be every day. And... Sometimes, as I said, I think honesty is the key to that, that you come off and you learn this the more you play and the older you get because when you're younger, you're more emotional, you're more impetuous, you you can get angry, you know, all about that. Mm -hmm. And once you've got over that and controlled that, what happened there? And as I said earlier, you know, bowlers play the game of cricket and the score runs, but they are allowed to bowl a good ball. Mm. To be honest, as a batter the way you think should be, okay, well, well, I think about four, maybe five times through my whole career could I come up and say I didn't think I did a lot wrong. Mm. 
The rest of the time, I probably didn't get forward enough. I didn't go back. I should have let it go. Wrong shot selection, wrong execution. So learn from it. And, and you know, how often have we heard great bowlers say, my aim is not to bowl a miracle ball, but it's to get enough balls in the right area to get a chance. And that's the way the great West Indian bowlers bowled. That's the way that Richard Hadley bowled. It's the way that, you know, he'd probably swing it around corners, but it was him at ground. Get enough balls in the right area to give me a chance. Blokes like that. Um, and there were many of them, but I reckon that was their, their aim all the time. So you had to be honest with yourself. So the next day you could go out, clear mind, Lessons learned. Let's we're all human, but let's try and not do that again. What you said there is so important is people to be brutally honest to themselves, not sweep things under the carpet. And that's looking looking yourself in the mirror and just saying, Okay, what happened? What why did it not go exactly to plan? And what are the things that I can take out of it to learn from for the next time that I go out? Whereas, you know, the people who sort of just sweep it under the carpet a bit and don't really actually have that real hard conversation with themselves and dig into exactly, you know, why things didn't go exactly to plan. That's where the power of learning all the time and evolving as a, as, as a person, not just as a cricketer as well. Well, absolutely. And, you know, back in those days too, we were typical men. Hmm. Anything that wasn't going right up here, well, correctly, we would keep to ourselves. Mm. And younger guys coming into the team would say, oh, A, B and B will be okay. They played a lot of cricket. They'll sort it out. But this is where the young man these days is learning and is so much better at discussing these things. Mm. Out in the open, not being afraid to try and help your mate, you know. How are you today? How are you feeling? You know, are you yourself? They've noticed something different. They want to bring it out of you. There's, you know, there's so much more. You want to have a chat, um, not leave them themselves and so on. And I think we've got better, and I know I definitely have got better as the years have gone by, is actually discussing that, not only from a cricket sense, but from a life sense all the time. I can't believe how much my young bloke talks to his mother. I, I'd ne- I would have never have spoken to my mother that much. Mm. And about things that he does. I think it's wonderful. Mm. He tells me the peripherals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just things you need to know, Dad. And, and I suppose in some ways the, the girls talk to me mm. about things that they want. You know, I don't know how that goes, but the key is chatting about it. Yep. And especially in the times that we're in now, mm. COVID situation, it's so important that we all allow time and don't put anybody off from having a chat or promoting having a chat. How you going, mate? You all right? You know, that sort of thing. It's, it's so important. Yeah, it's a great message. It's a great message, Babsy, for sure, because that's the one thing in this, in this day and age, and especially now with the COVID situation as well, is, yeah, if there's – if there's someone who you feel slightly off, is definitely just ask them how they're going. And yeah, you know, and the great thing now, people are definitely more open 
to, um, you know, talking about things, to be able to work it through instead of trying to work it through in their own mind, which a lot of the time, if you don't actually verbalize it or write it down, it can just continue to swell, swell around in your mind and get, you know, at times get a bit, um, you know, overwhelming. Mate, it can't. And it can be, it's so easy to become overwhelmed with these things and at times dwell on the, the negative rather than the positive of the future and things like that. And I'm sure there are so many small business people out there or individuals in employment situations that are thinking that, mm. that you know, we're going to come out the other side of this thing and how are we going to cope while we're not able to earn what we normally do or open our business doors? How are we going to survive? You know, to try and look positively at that is a big battle, but one that I think would help that I think we're going to have casualties, but some are going to come out the other side. Bernie, this is going to go now go into other aspects of life away from cricket. And I believe this is one of the most important life skills. Um, and you just touched on it then that most of us don't get much education on throughout our lives, um, which is managing investing our money as well as we possibly can. Um, because this is integral to, us being able to look after our mental um, health and, and well-being as well. So, and I know you missed um, out on you know, the earning capacity that's now available to, to cricketers nowadays. But looking back from where you are now, what would you have done things differently from an investment and wealth generation point of view? Mate, it's a question that's often asked. Um, and I think initially we, we, we've got to look at it and, again, I hark back to let's make the game better than when we joined it. I think we are decent money when we played. Um, I, I don't think we were poorly paid. Mm. Look at it in respect of the purchase value of the dollar at that time, we were probably able to do some things that we wouldn't have been able to do, mm. you know, with, with real estate and some investment and stuff like that that what cost us a dollar costs $5 now. You know, you, you've got to look at it at that respect of setting yourself up and, and being right. So I think, but in saying that, we probably operated a different way where um, until I knew at the end of the financial year, or more so should I say, the honoured treasurer, my wife, who took care mm-hmm. of everything, until we knew what we had clear at the end of it, 12 months, then you would decide. You know, we, we did the normal things, I suppose. We, we gradually invested in some real estate. We uh, you know, upgraded our personal residences and stuff like that. And as things grew and became more stable, then you, know, you, you would experiment shares, property, bits and pieces. I've never gone into business as such. Mm-hmm. Basically because I think if you do, you've got to give it everything that you've got and make it work. I I would have loved to have owned a restaurant or a Mm -hmm. pub Mm -hmm. to be there. If if you're operating partly on your name, you've got to be there. You can't let anybody else do that. So, But I think in other ways I've been blessed to be able to remain in the game of cricket, which probably hasn't allowed for that personal time to go into business as such and be in control of that. Um, 
through being a selector and administrator and now a match referee, it's probably not feasible. So, you know, I've dabbled in little bits and pieces. I would like to think that Pip and I have been relatively wise over the years and been able to, most importantly, support our children, um, give them all equal opportunity um, with their schooling and their education and assistance after the fact. So, you know, and, and we do that for the rest of our lives. So mm. I think that's one of your biggest investments, that you can get yourself, be lucky enough to get yourself in a position where you can support your children, which are the, you know, that's what we're on the earth for, I mm. think. Yeah. And they're, they're th- my three are the things that I'm really proud of. I'm proud of all three of them, of what they've achieved what they've done in their lives, short lives thus far. Mm. And, um, you know, we, we, we can still be there to support them. So, and occasionally Pip and I can have a holiday. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, a, it's an amazing perspective, um, Babsy. Um, and what, what you said there around not um, something so simple but is so profound around you and Pip working through at the end of the financial year, working through what you have to then invest it. Whereas a lot of pitfalls, and I was a, I was a big one of that as well, was, oh, well, yeah, I'm, it's looking like I'm going to be earning this so, and I can get a loan, I can get a loan from the bank for this. So, yeah, let's, let's, let's go at it. And in the end, um, you know, I've, I've paid so much, so much money to banks in interest because, because of that philosophy instead of actually you know, waiting until you've got it to then, to then, you know, work out where you want to invest it, which is super wise. We just did it a little bit later than the guys can afford mm-hmm. to do it. Now they can do into things like that. We probably have to save a few more pennies and get a bit a bigger base before we could enter into the same sort of things that, that uh, the guys can do now, which is fantastic, and so on. But it, it, mate, it's it's probably a conservative attitude, but I, I do know a couple of guys, and it would be most inappropriate to say whom, who mm. were quite badly managed mm. and got given bad advice along those lines of, you know, you're playing for Australia, so therefore you can afford mm. fast afford to buy a house. You, you can afford this. And then sadly, in the nature of the game, even though they were very good players, either through injury or a little bit of bad form, 12 months later, 18 months later, they're not playing anymore. Uh, how do we service? What, what do we do? And all of a sudden, fast cars go, houses go, stuff like that. So I'm not saying conservative is the best way to go and the only way to go, but I think everybody's just got to look at their circumstances and not really try to get ahead of yourself with um, with life and realise what what are the priorities and what, What's a luxury and what do I need? The one thing that I realized through my 20s is that life is all about how well you bounce back from setbacks that life always throws at you. And I know you've you mentioned one before about um, what your mum said, but do you have a, a mantra or saying or um, along those lines that have helped you bounce back quicker from the challenges that life always throws at you? But again, I think with age, you get better at that, of being realistic. A mantra, no, but just I think a reality is that you can only be in control of what you can control. Mm -hmm. Learning to ignore 
or not place as much emphasis on things you can't control is a quite a, a good lesson to learn and, and try and you can only do that through experience um, as you move forward and, and as we said, you know, we experienced some things that we didn't do as well as what we would like. So to put it all in reality, what was I in control of, what wasn't I? And sort of isolating that helps you to move forward to the next venture. You know, I think everyone in life too, you'll make some good investments, you'll make some bad ones or ones that, no, none's a bad one, but it just didn't work. Mm. You've got to look like that and get back on the horse, I suppose, in many respects. Um, but it's just it's life lessons. Mm. Open to life lessons. Yeah, and just move forward with with everything. I think, um, mate, to be happy, to be fulfilled, means a hell of a lot to to everyone. I think, and you know, we're all dealt different lots in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was what makes the world go round in many respects. But let's, you know, as we said, be the best that you can be. Enjoy your life. Be realistic. Dwell on what we can control, not what we can't. Yeah, it's very important, especially in um, you know this this very difficult environment at, at the moment. Is just being understand that the things that you can control and doing those to the best of your ability, and then trying not to worry about the things that are out of your control because there's no point worrying about something that you know you, you can't do anything about apart from learn from you know learn for learn for the future. Yeah, mate, we've all had to do things. You know, we've all had to do things differently during this period, things that we're not used to, things that we don't normally do, some of those we don't like. Mm. You know, like I haven't been able to see our kids for, I think, since February. Mm. Um, we haven't travelled anywhere <laughs> since I, I came home from South Africa in the first week, end of the first week of February and haven't been anywhere mm. since. Mm. I think it's the, the longest I've been home since I was 16. <laughs> so... Mate, I'm still married. We're doing all right. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, you know, it's good. It's given me an insight into early retirement. Mm. You do. Play golf as much as you can. Happy days. (laughs) Sounds sounds pretty good. (laughs) Um, You've met and been around some of the most successful people in the world. Um, Who has inspired you the most and and why? Mate, I I think when, when you're a kid, we all have people that we we look at and I came from a sporting family so those when younger days were I'm a, I'm a Carlton supporter so you know I was a great fan of Bruce Duell. I was a great fan of Joe Frazier probably because he was the underdog against Muhammad Ali all the time there were people like that I looked up to I watched Viv Richards and wow all of a sudden I ended up playing against him um Greg Chappell Dennis Lilly I ended up playing with. You know, you have all these sporting people. Somebody that I think changed the world, I probably learned not till very late in my current days and not long after I, I became a, a selector. I'm oh, not a selector, an ICC match referee. And I went to South Africa and I went to this place in Cape Town, this museum, and I had no real idea about Nelson Mandela's life, that at one stage he was regarded as a terrorist. I was quite naive. But then 
to read his one of his books, that big long, you know, the, the long, long road to freedom. Freedom, yeah. Long road to freedom. The you know, listen to South African people, watch him. Obviously, movies about his life. You know, the the, the one with the the rugby when South Africa won the World Cup. Yeah, Invictus. That, mm. Yes, and, you know, like watching things like that, mate. He changed the world. Mm. Not only South Africa, I think he changed the world and the way people think. And for a man not to have any malice, desire for reprisal after he, he was um, held on Rabbin Island for that long, phenomenal. Yeah. And I, I really admired what he achieved in his life. I completely agree. It is, yeah. He wasn't a perfect man either, mm. in many respects. So, yeah. you know, it, it takes a lot, but I, I think, you know, that, that really had an influence on, on how I viewed him and the, the, the way that I respected what he achieved mm. what he did. So his book, um, The Long Walk to Freedom, is definitely one of your favourite books that you've, that you've read? Mate, it, is, and it took me forever. I'm not a quick reader, so yeah. it took me Long time that book. Yeah, to go, I had to go back into it again a couple of times um, mm. and just refresh the memory on it. But I, I like books. I, when I was a kid, I never read it all. Mm. Um, when I met Pip, she got me into reading. Started me with her father was a, is a great reader, mm. and they got me into Stephen King books because they thought is that right? This would be an easy way to start. Nice easy read. <laughs> And I think I've read every single book he's ever written. Uh, but then I expanded. But mainly I, I'll scan biographies mm. and reality. Um, love a good crime thriller. <laughs> On yes. books, that sort of thing. Patterson. Um, mm. Recently with, with the advent of e-readers. And you don't have to count books everywhere. Yeah. I sort of they suggest books on your style and what you like. So um, I've read a lot of others that I can't remember the authors, but, you know, main, mainly into the, the crime thriller sort of stuff um, and a few house books. I've got a Paul Bang Gardens. Can you believe that? I quite enjoyed looking at that and how to design gardens and um, plants to use and all that sort of stuff. Is that right? I didn't know that, that about right? you. Yes. No, we've just moved house for the first time for 22 years. Right. We're in planning stages and obviously a new garden will be a part of that. So I've been studying up on what I would like and what takes the least amount of work after the Very wise. <laughs> wow, there you go. You learn something every day. The green thumb, David Boone. <laughs> <laughs> just on the weeder. Yeah. <laughs> Love a chainsaw too. Love a chainsaw. <laughs> as long as you've got permits to use it. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to start that up unless Pip's at home. Yeah. Supervision. Just yeah. being a medical person, she's got great fear that I'd do myself damage on my own. Bernie, it's, it's so incredibly special to have had you on this episode of Lessons Learned with the Greats. You inspired not just me growing up, but so many cricketers throughout the world. And now it has been phenomenal to hear the lessons that you have learned throughout your career, career and your life. 
I'm so grateful for you taking time to share all these amazing insights with me and everyone who listens to this will be that much richer for digging deeper into the mind of one of the greats of world cricket. Thank you so much, mate. Mate, it's been a privilege. Cricket's been a privilege for me. And it's been fantastic, as I said right at the start, to watch your career from start to nearly finish. Nearly finish. <laughs> nearly finish. For more episodes of Lessons Learned with the Greats, head to t20stars.com forward slash podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.